Welcome to this episode of the Security Clearance Careers Podcast, ClearCast, your source for security clearance, intelligence community, espionage, national security, and defense contracting updates in our exclusive interviews with intelligence community and government leaders. Hello, hello, and thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Security Clearance Careers Podcast. I'm your host, Katie Keller, Content Marketing Manager at clearancejobs.com. And today we have Luke Shavro on the line. He is the Deputy Director of the Mad Scientist Initiative with the Army's Training and Doctrine Command. He is a former intelligence analyst and instructor and a futurist hoping to describe the landscape of what lies ahead in the threat landscape. So today we're going to discuss the Mad Scientist Initiative, the future operational environment, some challenges to verifying the legitimacy posed by these threats, and what jobs may look like as a part of all this. So these are the personal opinions and views of Luke and are not necessarily reflective of the Department of Defense, the U.S. Army, or TRADOC. So Luke, thank you so much for joining me today. Katie, thanks for having me on. Really appreciate it. Excellent. So I'm really excited to hear more about this. I have read a little bit about the Mad Scientist Initiative, but tell us what this means under TRADOC and what stakeholders are involved and what sparked the implementation of the program. Really, the Army Mad Scientist, a lot of people ask, okay, so are you all mad? And ironically, most of the people on the team are not scientists or engineers, but we work with a whole lot of scientists and engineers. So the program really came about in the mid-2000s and was a program that was looking at the old TRADOC G2, Maxie McFarlane, had looked at the problems we were facing at the time in Iraq and Afghanistan, and we saw wide proliferation of IEDs. And as people saw in the national security community, we had to stand up programs like JT Coic, Jiedo. I worked myself on the counter IED and insurgency targeting program out of NGIC. And so you saw this stand up of all this stuff and we kind of got caught by surprise. And so you had up armoring of Humvees and all these technologies coming out to counter this threat. And the G2 at the time really looked at it and said, why are we caught unawares about this? We've seen the signals. We've seen the trends. You saw it as early back as Vietnam into the conflicts that we saw in former Yugoslavia. All these areas. So why are we caught so unaware? So he stood up the Army Mad Scientist Initiative to really get outside of our echo chamber and start talking to people outside of the Army. So the original program was mostly contained within the government still. And so you had scientists from the FBI, from Homeland Security, from NASA Langley Research Center working together and coming up and having gone back and looked at those products from the mid-2000s, they were pretty spot on. But because of the self-contained kind of nature of it, you really didn't get wide permeation throughout senior leadership. It didn't really soak in, so to speak. So the program kind of shuddered as we saw drawdowns in Iraq and Afghanistan. However, my boss now and the current G2, Mr. Tom Greco, really recognized around 2014-15 what was happening in a revolution of military affairs in China, the invasion that we had seen of Russia into Crimea and eastern Ukraine, what was happening with ISIS in Syria. So seeing all these things taking place, there was a lot of emerging trends within the changing character of warfare. And so what we wanted to do was, once again, not get ourselves stuck in groupthink and our own silo within the Army, but really start to think about the future operational environment. And to do that, you really have to reach out and talk to people that the Army normally doesn't talk to. And so when we talk about 
the future operational environment, we can't really just talk about it in a military context. It is a operational environment that's filled with people, that is filled with all these different trends around the world. And sometimes we look at a lot of technological trends, but there's a lot more there as well, including political, societal, economic. There's all these different characteristics. And so to get a grasp on that, what we're trying to do is really harness the intellect of the nation. And so Mr. Greco restarted the program in 2015. We started working on engaging three different communities, really, and we wanted to be open about it so that it wasn't a whole lot of just classified information that just stuck within the military. We wanted to not only engage these folks that are out there, but also be able to share that information with them. Because like General Milley has said in the past, we are an army of and for the people. So we want to connect and again, harness that intellect of the nation. So those three communities that we really work with are first still the government. So of course, working with our sister services, we have a strong relationship with the intelligence community, done a lot of work with the National Intelligence Council. We also do a lot of work with the Department of State, Department of Treasury, FBI, DHS, done a lot of work with the Secret Service. So we try to engage throughout the government and not just, again, within the DOD. The second group is where we target academia. So we usually have pre-COVID, we would have about two physical conferences in person every year. And when we do these conferences, what we try to do is partner with a premier academic institution. So Georgetown University, their Center for Security Studies has been a major partner of ours for several years. We've also hosted conferences with the University of Texas Austin, SRI International, GTRI, and many others. So we engage academia because they're research not just for research sake, but they're not tied to kind of those profit margins and trying to look at what's profitable and what's within kind of the two to five year scope, but they can really start to look further out beyond that. And then the third community that we work with a lot is also industry and tech. And so we range kind of from the larger tech firms. So we've done work with IBM and Google and NVIDIA, but we also do a lot with startups in trying to understand what's at the bleeding edge of technology. What's happening out there that's not being widely adopted, but is gonna give us those weak signals for how we think about the future. So the overall program, like I said, really looks at the future operational environment. We're trying to understand what implications that then has for the US Army and really the DOD as a whole, because we have to then turn around and work with the requirements and capability developers within the Army to say, here's the future operational environment. This is where the Army is going to have to operate. These are the challenges they're gonna face. and then they can turn around and say, what are the requirements for this? How do we build the Army to be future ready? So we've been referred to before as the Army's future scouts, but really what we're trying to do is help describe the future operational environment. We do that with a number of other partners within our own community as well. A lot of work with TRADOC G2 Futures, Army Futures Command, and other Army entities to make that happen. So that kind of sums up what Army Mad Scientist does. That's the game, right? When you're trying to catch these moving targets like today's threats, they're forever changing. And it really does take that cross collaboration between government, industry, academia to really describe what they're going to look like. And I really love that you're working with partners that don't necessarily work in a classified environment because they just have a different perspective that they're bringing. And, you know, speaking of perspectives, you have a background in Intel. You know, for folks listening, I actually recruited for and staffed one of the programs that Luke used to work 
on. And so it's kind of funny, a small world that that was. But why the switch to something so theoretical and discovering or trying to imagine what the future of emerging tech and these threats look like? That's a great question. I think I've just always been extremely interested in the future. So it's very, when you're working in the intelligence community, as people know, you have to have confidence ratings when it comes to your sources, your analysis. And if you look throughout the intel community, you're really not going to see very long range kind of forecasts because we have to be right. And we have to be so accurate and certain about a lot of things that you can't afford to get into the kind of guesswork sometimes that's involved with futures. And I shouldn't say guesswork, but it's a whole lot of alternative futures that you have to look at across a broad scope. I've always been really interested in that because we kind of tend to think about the current threat that we face and we get stuck in this world where it's just the day-to-day that we're going against. And that tends to be the case sometimes in the intelligence community. And so I've just really always been interested in looking at alternative futures, what happens out there and how do we help predict it? And I have a couple personal reasons too. So one, the previous deputy director on the program was Joel Lawton, intelligence specialist as well, who was at Tradoc and we lost Joel in 2016 and he was actually in my previous position. And Joel really taught me a lot about thinking about the future, about writing about the future and really connecting to this community that was out there. He was a huge influence on me and it was a really tragic loss, not just for myself and Joel's family as well, but the entire Tradoc G2 family. And so I really wanted to take on what Joel had been working on and take it further into the future because of him being a close friend of mine. And then I have two sons that are eight years old and 11 years old. And honestly, I think a lot about the future because I think about what kind of army I want them to potentially be serving in one day if they decide to serve in the military. So I want to help future-proof or future-ready that army in the future. I tell people all the time with mad scientists, we produce a lot. We work a lot on this. It's all very hard work. It's fun, but it's a labor of love. Well, and fear is the best motivator and fear of what the future will look like and what it looks like for your kids certainly motivates you on a day-to-day, I'm sure. But so it, it, it is difficult to imagine the future and imagine these future threats and kind of know what the direction of the world in practice is going to look like years ahead. So when you're thinking about what these future scenarios look like, how do you validate them or assimilate them? It is conjecture. So how how do you go through that process? It's a process that requires kind of a multi-pronged approach. So what you really have to do is establish your baseline. So for instance, we have our changing character warfare document that really looks at describing the future operational environment. Last year, we just released the future operational environment 2021 to 2030. And in that, you have to kind of establish your baseline. As I tell people all the time, we don't predict the future operational environment. We describe the future operational environment. So Dr. Soren Lung from National Defense University had a quote that I like to use all the time, which is point prediction is a sucker's bet. So even if I had told people three years ago, Russia is going to invade Ukraine in 2022, I probably would have got it wrong based on the date, how it manifested. We have scenarios like that all the time that don't really pan out like that. So getting into point predictions just doesn't benefit the predictors or the Army or DOD itself. But what we try to do is 
describe the characteristics of that future operational environment. What technologies might we see proliferate the society, proliferate the battlefield? What trends are we seeing that might take place, not only in the societal and economic trends, but when we talk about environmental, things like climate change and how that impacts that future operational environment. And then when you go from there, if you're trying to actually measure things quantitatively, what you have to establish is a range of possibilities that you think. And this is where actually previously, or really I should say still being an intelligence analyst really comes into play because you're used to establishing your most likely course of action, your most dangerous course of action. You really have to develop what are these COAs for commanders so they can think about what that range of possibilities is. We do the same thing in futures. So one of the things we did with that future OE document I was talking about was looking at four post-COVID worlds. How does the world change in these situations or scenarios? And then what you have to do in order to measure those, as you were talking about, like how do you make sure you're either on track for this or something is off in it? It's a constant iterative analysis, and you also have to do some backcasting because you're going out to Army Futures Command tends to look out to 2050 and beyond, and some of the period before that as well. And then you see at Tradoc G2 Futures, we're really looking out to kind of 2030 time frame, really what you consider within like the palm spending cycle, right? So looking at that, we have to then say, okay, if this was the future, if this is one of the futures that we put out there, then you have to look at kind of signposts to say, what would be indicators to show us that we are actually going towards this future? Because otherwise we're just projecting out four different futures and it really doesn't help you in the iterative timeframes where you're actually modernizing, where you're changing doctrine and concepts and training. You have to look and see what future are we heading towards? And so it's really important to be clear when you're doing the future operational analysis, but also when you're planning that backcasting to say, all right, what are my signposts and then what can I see? And we're seeing some of that come to fruition now. So one of the things that we've talked about in the past is, for instance, on the future battlefield, really seeing the proliferation of unmanned systems and how commonplace that is going to become and how that's going to be really showcased on the battlefield. Well, we're seeing it right now in Russia and Ukraine. We're seeing the effectiveness of the Turkish TB2 that the Ukrainians are using. We're seeing how important those are for suppressing air defense, for targeting armored vehicles. So we have to look at that and say, is this lining up with what we were thinking about? And then you have to continue to iterate on that analysis. And then and say, well, what's the character of that? Do we think it's going to change in the near future? And so the future is really a constantly moving target that we're trying to figure out. There was a quote I saw before where the future is here now, it's just unevenly distributed. So we're always trying to figure out how it's changing. And so that future casting is really fluid. You made me think of something, you know, the Army Mad Scientist program, it is cross collaborating across different organizations within the US. But when you are seeing these sort of threats or these trends within the battlefield in other countries, do you ever work with allied nations or cross collaborate on a global scale? 100%. As former Secretary of Defense General Mass has said, we will not go to war alone. And we understand that we're going to be working with our partners and allies. We have to collaborate now and to understand that future operational environment if they don't share that vision or at least aren't on the same page as us when we think about that future operational environment then we're not 
properly aligned. So there's instances where we're seeing strengths in certain allies that might have niche capabilities, whether it's in Arctic conditions, or maybe they have niche capabilities in mountain warfare, jungle warfare. And so we have to kind of align with those allies for, for lack of a better term. And so what we do is we do a lot of work with the foreign liaison officers or flows at TRADOC because TRADOC has a ton of foreign officers from our allies and partners. And we work with them to keep them up to date, not only on all the work we're doing, but we also want to solicit their insights. So we actually had an event, really our, one of our last events pre-COVID, global perspectives on the operational environment. And so we had our partners come in to see what they thought about the future operational environment, because we tend to get, again, we don't want to get into that silo. We don't want a just myopic US-centric view, because those partners and allies we go to war with may have a different idea of what the highest threats are, what they see emerging in that future environment. And so we learned a lot from having them involved and bringing them into seeing what that looked like and then what are they going to do about it. And so we do a lot of work with allies. We really want to stretch out. We've done some work as well with when it comes to wargaming with some of our allies as well done a lot of work with the UK Fight Club, which is a group of officers, enthusiasts, and folks over there that are looking at wargaming. So there's so much work to be done in these scenarios. And again, we're always trying to get information that we don't have. We're trying to get knowledge that we don't have. And they have a very different perspective. We also think about things differently when it comes to threats. Something that may not seem like a existential threat to the United States to a Polish foreign liaison officer is extremely existential if it's right on their border. So we have to take account of that and really incorporate that into our analysis as well. Well, so you highlighted the pre-COVID events. I know that you also have a blog and you know do the crowdsourcing and you have a podcast. So do you have any favorite pieces of content that really show what the group is doing. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's hard to pick, right? Because it's like picking your favorite kids. We have a ton of content. I'll just do the obligatory marketing push for people to check out the blog site that we have, the Army Mad Scientist Laboratory. Katie, I'm sure you'll be able to provide that on the website. And then we also have our own podcast, Mad Scientist Convergence Podcast. And I highly encourage folks to check that out as well. Really some pieces that I'm particularly proud of that I think kind of showcase how mad scientists thinks about these things. We put out a How Blank Fights series on the podcast where we had an episode on how Russia fights and an episode on how China fights. And so we brought experts from across academia, from the intelligence community, from the DOD, but also brought in foreign partners to come talk about that as well. Same for an episode that we had, which was the future ground combat through the soldier's eyes, where I was extremely proud to have on some folks, one being a reporter from Azerbaijan to talk about the second Nagorno-Karabakh war. And unfortunately, the uh, fallen Ukrainian soldier, Denis Antipov, who was a uh, Ukrainian UAV commander that was unfortunately killed in combat in May. So extremely proud of those episodes because it really reached out to a wide group and I think cover things that are extremely prescient right now and will be important not only to senior military and national security leaders, but really our American people as a whole. 
Let's talk about the future of jobs because I know that our audience is so interested in this, especially after COVID when, you know, folks were working from home and folks sort of working more on the open source intelligence level and what that means for actually going into a skiff. So I know that a lot of this imagination that Army Mad Scientist program is doing is happening on the unclassified level. And so I'd love to hear your opinion on what this means for the future of the civilian landscape working outside the traditional skiff environment and what the future of those jobs look like in, you know, sort of this joint agency collaboration in AI, machine learning, other emerging tech, like what do you foresee it looking like for jobs? Yeah, it's a, that's, that's a huge question to unpack. But I think really what we have to get used to is a very large paradigm shift when we think about the intelligence community and jobs and really careers within it. Because we kind of think about, I grew up as an Intel analyst. I've been Intel analyst since I was 18. I joined the Navy and was an enlisted Intel specialist. I grew up in an environment where you don't get to talk about your job at all. I grew up in an environment where it wasn't much point in me having my cell phone most of the time because I was working in a skiff. And even for the longest time, I didn't even bother to get a smartwatch because I spent most of my career and most of my life in a skiff. And so it, it's such a different dynamic, especially for those listening who have been in the Intel community, you understand the dynamic of how different the work is. And so even in the early stages, well, pre-COVID, when you would see jobs out there where they were starting to work with ideas of telework, remote work, and these different hybrid environments, and we could all really look in the Intel community and say, cool for everybody else, not going to happen for us. Because the requirement, again, to be in that secure environment, to work on classified systems, unless you're a pretty highly placed senior leader, you were likely not going to have that kind of skiff in your house. So working from home was just not an option or a thing that we could do. And so we saw COVID really change that dramatically. And that changed it in terms of what everybody else saw, which was, okay, now we're having to see how we can get people to possibly not come into the office at all. And that was nearly impossible at first, at least for the intelligence community. We just can't do that. And I think if you poll people throughout the IC, if you look at throughout COVID, especially the highest levels of the pandemic, you still had a lot of people that really had to come into the office and just kind of risk it because we didn't have much of a choice. The nation's mission was still there. We still had to provide the intelligence and threat analysis for that. And so you saw a lot of people still coming in. But what we started to see was we're actually seeing a coalescing right now between what's happening with the changing character warfare, and especially as we see it showcased in Russia-Ukraine conflict right now, and then what we saw with COVID, because what you're seeing out of Ukraine, out of this conflict right now, is a wide proliferation of in what would normally could be considered intelligence, in that, yes, we've always worked in open source intelligence. It's one of the several ints that we think about in all source intelligence fusion, but it's become so dynamic, so widely spread in terms of what's available via social media, via reporting on the ground, what all the sensing that's taking place through the internet of things, more full motion video available in the unclass realm than we've ever seen. So there's so much out there that's really kind of changing the paradigm 
of how we think about intelligence. And there's always going to be a role and a major one at that of classified information. We just can't go out and say, okay, well, let's throw the baby out with the bathwater. We don't need to work with sensitive sources or within the classified realm. That's just not possible. So we're going to have to always work within that. But I think what we're going to see is kind of this explosion of hybrid workforces when it comes to the intelligence community, because we have to start thinking about that. And I cannot guarantee any programs at all, but I know there's exploration into how do we work with expeditionary or deployable type classified systems so that people can work anywhere. Because the truth of the matter is we need to be able to work in a lot of times distributed environments and we might be operating in denied, disrupted, degraded comms environments. So how do we start to change the paradigm on all that? And I think you're going to see that now where friends of mine and the IC are actually working in those hybrid positions where they're in the office maybe two days or three days out of the week, but they're able to do other things at home or at a remote working site that they're at. So I think we will change that dynamic, especially in this generation. And I think it has to change in a way as well, but I think it has to change in a way because the generation that we are asking, that we're recruiting for to come into the intelligence community, can we continue to say, okay, you're going to spend the majority of your life, your working life, in a skiff where you have no connection to anything. We are bringing in people who are used to being connected 24 seven and we want the best and brightest. And so to bring them in, you can't have any of this stuff, any kind of internet of things device, anything remotely connected to go into a skiff. And how does that work when we're trying to get this whole new generation of the intelligence community? How do we tell them you can no longer do this? And I think the answer is that we're not going to be able to. So we really have to start seeing what can you not do in the young class realm? What are things that you just cannot do there possibly and reserve that to be able to work in a secure environment? And we have to start getting more comfortable with open source intelligence, which is a bit of a change, especially for people like myself who have been in the Intel community for almost 20 years. I couldn't agree with you more. As we see folks leaving the sort of cleared industry, we really do need to make these types of careers more attractive to Gen Z and, you know, even the folks that are moving into leadership positions, they really need to shape the way and moving forward to recruit and retain you know, some of these folks that are definitely not interested in national security. But the thing is, I think that this mission is something that could be attractive to the next generation. But yes, just like you said, we kind of need to change the shape of our working environment for some of these young folks. And I'm sure just in the amount of time that you've been working in Intel and sort of seeing like sources change, I mean, everything else is going to have to change with it. Threats are changing. The workforce is changing. Everything's changing. So we need to move with that change. So the future of jobs, the Army Mad Scientist program, it's so, so cool. I, I want to hear, are there any upcoming conferences or events that you could tease to or highlight here? Yeah, absolutely. Really excited because we're having our first in-person conference since 2019, thanks to COVID that we all dealt with like everybody else. We had a lot of virtual events, but we're finally able to get back in person, which I think there's a unique quality to just being able to network, talk to people in person. There's a different environment and energy and feel to that. November 8th through the 9th, we are going to be hosting the Back to the Future Using History to Forecast conference 
at the National Museum of the United States Army, which is just outside of Thorpe Belvoir. So we're really excited for that one because we're going to be featuring historians, futurists, tech and industry leaders, really looking at how do we take past experience? How do we take history and then connect that to how we think about, plan, and make decisions in the future? Because sometimes we get caught in a loop of thinking that everything happening to us is extremely unique. This is all new in 2022. And and in some ways it is, but there's also so many lessons learned from history that we can then connect to how we think about the future, how we forecast, how we look at those varying futures is based on sometimes what we've experienced in the past. We had a participant of MadSci, we have what we call not a community of practice, but a community of action. And so we have this community of action. And one of my favorite quotes from one of our members was, those who fail to learn the lessons from the future are doomed to repeat them the first time. And the idea being is if we don't think about this, if we don't use history and form ourselves and think about what the future challenges and detriments to the force could be, then we're putting ourselves in a terrible position. So I'm really excited about this conference, really grateful to the Center for Military History and the National Museum of the U.S. Army for hosting us. Can't wait to see folks out there. So for those that aren't able to make it, we'll be live streaming it as well. And then for all of our conferences, when we finish, we actually post those videos. So if they miss presenters, those will be posted on our YouTube channel as well. So really excited for that one. Yeah, sounds dope. Also, I really appreciate the Army Mad Scientist sort of entertainment back to the future. The future is now. I think that was a tagline for honey, we shrunk ourselves. The future is now. So I, I really, I really appreciate all that. We have a deep connection to sci-fi, to entertainment, because it's so important. One of the things we think about the future with is storytelling, because I could throw documents at people, white papers, and there's folks who are are nerdy wonks like myself who would be interested in it, but storytelling contextualizes and storytelling draws the audience in. So everything we do has to be related to storytelling. Sure. Oh, that's so great. Well, hey, everyone, this is Luke Shabro from the Army Mad Scientist Initiative. And I wanted to give a space for some closing thoughts. So just for anyone listening, we've talked a lot about the future of careers, the future of the operational environment, the future of the battlefield. What would be your advice for those who are listening who may be teetering on whether to get into this field those who might be interested in pivoting, or maybe those listening who really don't care at all and who you think should get involved in stuff like this. Yeah, absolutely. So if you're out there and you don't care at all, I would say you should care because it's your future too. When I think about the future operational environment, sometimes it's an extremely scary thing. I go to different commands. I was briefing an installation commander in the U.S. and he told me that we should call it sad scientists because there was a lot of kind of dark stuff when you think about the future. But there's also a lot of promise and opportunity. And I think that if you think about yourself, where you're going to be in the next 10, 15, 20 years, or even if not yourself, your children, your relatives, your loved ones, your friends, thinking about that 
I think is incredibly important. And I want people to be engaged because it can't be just professional or semi-professional futurists that are looking at this. I will never, as a futurist who works for the Army, I am limited to my experience, to working in the intelligence community for these years, for always being involved in the DOD. So I will always have that window and that perspective and that experience. But I can't have the experience that mechanical and chemical engineers have there out there, that writers have, data scientists, all these people out there that are experts in their fields, I wanna hear from all of them. Because if we don't have an informed future operational environment, then we are leading ourselves down a very dark path. And so I want people to be involved and interested. I promise you, if you look at the futures programs across the United States, DOD, as well as the whole government. There's been some great articles recently. I promise you there are aspects of that futures community that apply to literally everyone that's going to be listening to this. It doesn't matter if you're part of the DOD, a part of the national security community, it applies to everyone. For folks thinking about getting involved in the futures game, getting involved as a, as a profession, if you have an intellectual curiosity, if you're willing to be relentless, if you're willing to be open to not only new ideas, but open to criticism as well, the futures community is for you. It's really about, I tell people all the time when it's thinking about the future, it's constantly about engaging, communicating, uh, and most of all, consuming when it comes to content, both digital, physical, thinking about audio, video, um, a really persistent reader, um, because if you're thinking about the future, you have to engage again, not just in national security matters, but you have to start becoming a jack of all trades in almost everything to understand at least what those things are. Uh, I talk about it all the time with things like data science. I'm not a data scientist. However, I am data literate, so I can understand where the data is coming from, what the context of it is, what it's driving, all those different things. And so we need people, if you're working in futures, who can be literate in a lot of different areas. That would be my biggest recommendation. The future is now, people. So the future affects all of us. If you think, if you don't care, like he said, you should. But for more on future careers and what the future battlefield will look like, you can visit news.clearancejobs.com. This podcast is sponsored by the Northern Virginia Technology Council. Join them at the 7th Annual Capital Cybersecurity Summit on October 19th at 2.30 p.m. at Capital One Hall in Tysons. The summit will feature some of the biggest and brightest minds in cyber and national security. Two panels on cyber hacking and innovation will include experts from Amazon Web Services, Expedia Group, iNova, MITRE Labs, and more. Plus, the winners of the 4th Annual NVTC Capital Cyber Awards will be announced. Learn more and get your tickets at CapitalCyberSummit.com.